For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with filmmaker Andrea Meller about Now in Espanol. It's the story of five Latina actresses who provided voices for the Spanish-language version of the TV show Desperate Housewives. Meet Olivier Guillon, a University of Arizona astronomer who's leading the search for Earth-like planets outside our solar system. Get a preview of the upcoming student film showcase, I Dream in Widescreen and find out how 4,000 years of local history will be celebrated at the San Isidro Festival. Those stories and more coming up on Arizona Spotlight. Documentary filmmaker Andrea Meller says her latest film pulls back the curtain on one of Hollywood's lesser-known communities, the world of the often heard but rarely seen actors who provide alternate voice tracks for TV shows and movies. Now in Espanol tells the story of five women who became the Spanish voices of the main characters on the ABC TV series Desperate Housewives. It also includes their reflections on how typecasting and ageism influenced their careers. The film screened in Tucson at the 2015 Arizona International Film Festival. Filmmaker Andrea Meller joined me in the studio to talk about how it got started. The starting point was actually many years ago. I read an article 10 years ago in 2005 about the woman who dubbed Desperate Housewives into Spanish. And I had several reactions to the article. At the time, I was working on another documentary that was about men and women coming out of prison. And it was a great project. I'm really proud of it. But the three main characters were all Latino. And I'm Latina. You would never know by just looking at me. Um, But my parents are from Chile. And I grew up in New York. But I'm white. I've always been thinking about these issues of, of Latino identity and what it means to be Latino. And so making a film about three men coming out of prison that all happen to be Latino, I realized, oh, we kind of keep hearing the same stories about Latinos. Usually they involve crime or violence and poverty, not only in the fiction world, but in the documentary world, too. And these are they're important stories to tell, but I wanted to tell a different kind of story. So when I read the article about the the woman who dubbed Desperate Housewives into Spanish, who are all Latina, this might be like a fun way to tell a different kind of Latino story that not only diversifies what it means to be or or broadens the definition of what it means to be Latino because it's a very different kind of story, but also celebrates um, the culture and the art and, and people. I didn't move to Los Angeles where the actresses live until 2008. So that's when filming really started. When you moved to L.A. and you met the actresses that you hoped would be the stars of your next film, what was your first impression? What was getting together with them like? Any documentary that a filmmaker makes, you want to gain a certain amount of trust at the beginning um, because you're showing up with a camera and and basically borrowing people's stories to tell your own story. Mm, it can and be very intrusive. Very intrusive. And, and now in Espanol definitely falls right into that. It got very personal. But um, the nice thing about working with actresses is that they were comfortable pretty much immediately with me walking around with a camera 
near them. Um, but I think what helped a lot is that it was always one-on-one. I didn't have a big team, except for a, a few certain moments during the shooting. It was just me with a camera and the microphone on the camera. And so a lot of times it just felt like a conversation that we were having. And me asking questions and listening and also contributing my own thoughts and ideas. Um, but for me, what happened was that the the actresses started to really feel like family. I didn't really, I only knew a handful of people when I moved to Los Angeles. So I was spending all my time with the actresses. So they became my friends and my family and who I spent time with while making the movie. So let's be clear about one point, and that is that this uh, dubbing project was uh, initiated by ABC to make Desperate Housewives available in Spanish in America for American Spanish language broadcasting. So these actresses were all Americans, right? Yes. What were their thoughts on playing these roles without being seen in this case, being the voices behind the microphones? You know, I come in and I hear about the the dubbing of Desperate Housewives and I say, oh, you know, this is this is amazing. This is ABC acknowledging the Latino market and how it's growing, but with a limitation because they're not putting Latino actresses or actors and actresses on screen. Um, But I think for the actresses, when they got the chance to audition and also get the roles to dub Desperate Housewives, they were psyched. They were excited. It wasn't about being off camera or on camera. This was an opportunity to work on a hit show and and have that proximity and that prestige. So I, I think for them, it wasn't, they weren't looking at it the same way that I was um, specific to this job. You said that one of your goals in wanting to make the film was to find kind of a new way to explore Latina identity. Was this story what you were looking for in that sense? Definitely. I think it's always something as documentary filmmakers that we question, like how, what kind of impact can we have by making a movie? Is it the movie itself? Is it the, the outreach that we do with the movies? Is it changing, you know, one person in the audience's mind about how to think about something? And uh, me and my editor would talk about it. We're actually, we're doing it. We're putting these women who are invisible on screen. We're changing it just by making the movie. For me, choosing five women, which is a lot of characters for a documentary, I wanted it to be all five because they are diverse. They're from different countries originally. They look different. They have different issues and and different ideas of what it means to be Latina. And I think, you know, I think there's a power and a strength by creating the the term and the group Latino and Latina. But I think that there's also all of this diversity within that and so part of investigating these issues of identity for me was just broadening the definition and saying okay you know I'm Latina even though I'm white um, but I'm Chilean my Spanish is okay you know but so is the person next to me who's a lot darker and who speaks Spanish fluently and so is the person on the other side who has green eyes and you know it's just including everybody so is the person who has very dark skin that you would think was african american including all of those different people within this term i think is 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 one of the goals that I I had in making the film and and I think just by putting the women on screen and saying okay they're important and their stories are important was was achieving some of that goal 
Can you give us an example by telling us about one of the actresses who had perhaps struggled with typecasting in uh, her other auditions and roles? Yes. Um, kind of typecasting in two different ways. So there's Marabina, who's the narrator of Desperate Housewives, which is a little bit different than dubbing. She's narrating the show. Um, and she talks about it in now in Espanol in the documentary. She talks about how she would go in for roles and have all of these um, limitations because she didn't want to play a prostitute. She didn't want to play a maid. She wanted to play someone educated. I mean, for her, she wants to play a cop. She wants to play a lawyer. She wants to play, a, you know, an educated Latina woman on screen. And so it opened up the world of characters for all of the actresses. They got to play these really, really beautiful and deep characters. And even though we're just hearing their voices, they were acting and they were they were getting to, to live the lives of those characters. So it's just a whole, you know, it's getting to work on a, an amazing show. And then on the other hand, you have actresses in the film like Marcella or Gabriella who are more light-skinned, they're more fair with blonde hair, who don't get very many on-camera roles because they don't look Latina enough. And so Marcella, you know, would be told to dye her hair, and she doesn't want to dye her hair. She has blonde hair. That's what she grew up with. So um, to be able to play a character on Desperate Housewives, it, it didn't matter what she looked like. Now in Espanol debuts on The World Channel Sunday at 7 p.m. A schedule and more of my interview with Andrea Meller is at azpm.org. The MacArthur Fellowship Grant celebrates talent and creativity among academics, scholars, and artists. The more than $600,000 award was established in 1981, and each year around two dozen recipients receive the honor, sometimes called a genius grant. Five MacArthur honorees are among the faculty at the University of Arizona, and over the last month we've featured conversations with them on Arizona Spotlight. U of A astronomer and optical scientist Olivier Guillon received his MacArthur Fellowship in 2012. His landmark work was designing a telescope that blocked out starlight in a way that allowed astronomers to see other planets with greater clarity and precision. As Tony Perkins discovered, Guillon's passion for astronomy has been lifelong. You're looking at planets outside our solar system, but you're looking at them from the ground instead of from low Earth orbit. Now, you would think it would be better, maybe easier, to get that view from outer space. Why, why do you want to look at the planets from, uh, from the ground instead of from outer space? Well, we're actually trying to do both. Um, it depends on the planet we're looking at. It, it's indeed much better if we can go in above the Earth's atmosphere, but it's also very uh, uh, constraining. Um, it's, it's very costly, and, uh, and we can't put very big telescopes uh, above Earth's atmosphere, the, the biggest telescopes are on the ground. So this is why um, we're we're doing both. 
you built your first telescope yourself, and that was back when you were a teenager. What did you find so interesting about looking at the sky at that age? Um, it was very eye-opening that um, that we were basically um, on a small planet in the middle of, of a very large universe with a lot of um, open questions. So, uh, so I I really enjoyed looking at it visually, uh, looking at other galaxies, and uh, and realizing how, how big a place the universe is. Now, when some people receive the MacArthur Foundation's grant, uh, they are surprised. Uh, what was your impression when you received the award? They don't give you any warning ahead of time that that you're being considered. So it's always uh, it, to me it was a big surprise, uh, a huge honor also. Um, but I I I I didn't see it coming. Um, and it in in terms of my career, it it did it did help um, uh, a lot. It changes things because it gives you a lot of uh, a lot of recognition, um, and it it. Um, so it was very helpful. In in, in particular, it, it came at a time when I was uh, starting to push for a for an outreach uh, project to to get um, the public participating in, into exoplanet discoveries, and and that helped a lot for that project. Did it change your sense of confidence about your work? Um, somewhat. It it I think it mostly changes. Um, it it gives you visibility to uh, to help push projects forward, and and especially for the project that. That I'm referring to, that it was an outreach project. Um, it 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 helped um, tremendously. We uh, we always think of uh, astronauts as uh, as space explorers, but now maybe through your work, we have to also consider uh, physicists and researchers in optical sciences as explorers as well. Do you consider yourself an explorer? Uh, definitely so, and and um, yeah, this is. Uh, the work we're doing is is very exciting, I think, because we are essentially on the look for other civilizations, other life uh, outside of Earth, and and this is very challenging. As with any exploration, we we don't know what the outcome will be, um, but um, uh, through optics and and technology and astronomy, we are uh, gaining the the technical ability to do so. So it's uh, I think we live at at a very exciting time. Olivier, thank you very much. Thank you. Tony Perkins interviewed Olivier Guillon from the University of Arizona. The annual event, I Dream in Widescreen, returns to the Fox Tucson Theater Saturday. It's a one-evening film festival that features a diverse range of shorts produced by graduating Bachelor of Fine Arts students in the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television. Joining me now to tell us more about the event and their individual films are Megan Peterson and Wade Shields. Can you give us an idea, uh, Megan, of some of the uh, expectations placed on you as filmmakers? What kind of parameters do these movies have to make to make the cut? Um, well, I think we actually have really high expectations. I know um, the, in our program we've been growing every single year to make better and better, more quality films. Um, so the expectations are, are pretty high. We set that upon ourselves and so do our professors. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for everyone's films. There's a lot of great films showing on Saturday. 
Well, let's start with you, Megan. Tell us the name of your film and uh, the premise. Um, my film is called Today is the Day, and it is a modern silent film, um, and it is about a clumsy girl who has uh, dreams of becoming a dancer, and those dreams are kind of thwarted by her mean-spirited boss, and uh, she becomes reinvigorated to chase after her dreams after falling into a dance dream world. <laughs> okay. So that's it, yeah. What was it about the idea of shooting silent that appealed to you? What kind of storytelling um, advantages or disadvantages came with that? Disadvantages would be that obviously there's no speaking so that I kind of had to make my story as simple as possible um, so that it was easy to follow. But I would say advantages would be it kind of took out some of the technical issues. Like I know getting sound on set is is can be it quite tasking at some point so I didn't have to deal with that but the appeal I don't know the appeal of the silent film it was just so different and I mean I've I don't think I've ever, I've ever seen like a student silent film before in a few classes we always watch silent films and even my grandmother told me that she had a dream that I was going to make a silent film for my short film and that kind of also just that kind of inspired me to go and make a silent film tell me about casting your lead was it a challenge to find somebody it was not a challenge for me at all to find someone. I got very lucky with um, my main actress named Nikki Ruffalo. She's a freshman, actually, in the in the theater program. And um, I met her at our senior mixer that we had in, uh, in August, I think. She had this bubbly personality, and she came up to me, and she was just perfect. And I, I kind of already knew when I met her there that I was going to cast her. And then she came to my casting call, and she blew it out of the water. And... Um, so she was kind of my first choice from the moment I met her until the very end. So she found a way to really impress you without using dialogue, without yes. acting with yes. her voice? Yes, so actually in my casting call, um, I, re- I wanted my main actor actress to be able to dance. But at the time, it wasn't a part of my script because I didn't think I would find an actress that could dance. And she came, and she danced, and she had this wonderful personality, and she has so much emotion in her face um, doing anything. And so it was really easy for me. Well, based on this experience, are you interested in trying that genre again sometime? Oh, absolutely. It was so much fun. It was so much fun making this film. All the people that I worked with were just so great. Absolutely, I would do this again. All right, so Wade, tell us the name and the premise for, for your film. My film is Slashed, which is a slasher comedy musical. Uh, it follows the wife of a masked psycho killer who runs into a few of his victims and has to follow her conscience and stand up to him. How deeply involved were you with the writing? And this includes both the script and the music in this case. So I wrote everything, um, including the lyrics. The only thing I didn't write personally was the actual composing the music, uh, which that was done by LA-based artist Zach McNeil. Uh, He actually composed Megan's music as well. So he's out there doing great work. Um, But I presented him the script, which just instead of dialogue, it was just lyrics. And I actually sent him recordings of me singing the way I had come up with it. Um, But I was like... Yeah, but I was like, I'm not attached to these melodies at all, so you can do whatever you want. And, you know, then weeks pass by, and he sends me a music file, and he's like, here's what I came up with. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. What were your thoughts about trying to establish a tone for your film so that you could have both comedy and horror elements going on at the same time? 
Uh, so I definitely kind of set up the film in the horror world just because everyone's familiar with that. They know what it's like to be on a dark mountain road alone at night <laughs> with they? a masked killer. <laughs> I mean, they know it in a in a film sense. Uh, so I set them up in a scene they're, they're comfortable with, even if it's not their favorite genre. And then from there, it just kind of, I would say, breaks down the walls and then people are singing and there's laughter and it's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> What was uh, something you had to overcome to shoot this film? What was a real challenge for you in this? Probably the quick turnaround time that was required between script and having the music and recording the singing before we got to set. Basically, I had to have the script done before any of my classmates did just so that my composer would have time to get music to me so that I could then in turn have my actors perform it. And then we took those recordings to set so they could match up the words. And in terms of casting, how did you go about finding your victims and your killer? <laughs> uh, it was a mix of friends and students. <clears throat> and I had one person turn up uh, who heard about it on a local talent database um, they had somehow gotten wind of my auditions and posted it I didn't send it to them so I'm still not sure how it got there did you end up casting that person I did <laughs> so he'll be at the screening as well and as for my lead I actually went to high school and preschool with her um, and so she was in musicals there I remember seeing her in thoroughly modern Millie and I was in the pit playing on my saxophone, and she was up on stage singing. And so now in college, we finally brought it all together, and I, I got her to sing and act for me, and she was fantastic. Was it a collaborative atmosphere um, in terms of putting the movies together? Did you work on other films or give advice to your classmates? Well, Megan here actually su uh, supervised my sound design in post-production, so she was in the lab for countless hours helping level stuff out, and we were in there doing Foley together, recording each other's footsteps. Uh, conveniently, we were the same size as like the male and female in my film, and so we were able to get all the footsteps we needed. Oh yeah, as a class, um, you know, during the script stages, I know that I was sending my script to Wade and a few others for feedback. Um, we always were asking each other questions on like, what should I do for this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then we all helped each other on our films. Um, so it's definitely a collaborative effort. Nine student films, including Today is the Day by Megan Peterson and Slashed by Wade Shields, will be showcased in I Dream in Widescreen, Saturday at 7 at the Fox Tucson Theater downtown. There's information and more from our conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. <laughs> My guests, Diana Hadley and Raul Ramirez, represent the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace, a grassroots group that's invested more than five years of volunteer work in the Mission Garden Project at the base of A Mountain. The group's goal is to preserve and celebrate the 4,000-year story of humans living in the Tucson Valley. On May 16th, the group will throw a fiesta that continues a very old tradition. You have to go back to uh, at least 4,000 years, and there's history of continuous habitation and cultivation. The first uh, recorded uh, history that we have of the area was made by Padre Quino, who uh, visited uh, the area in 1692 or 1694. The time that he wrote about visiting the site, he recorded the name as 
San Cosme de Tucson, uh, Tucson or Chucson, and that's how Tucson got its name at the foot of the Black Mountain. Later, the site was known, first it was known as San Cosme, then it was a group of native people living there that were recorded as Sovaipuri, which are now considered part of the Atom Nation or the Tohono Atom Nation. They, they call it San Jose. Then later on, the site became known as San Agustin, so the name that we use now is San Agustin. So the site and what uh, Diana was referring to is Mission San Agustin and Convento, of which the Mission Garden is part of that complex. Agriculture has played an important role in developing this area, but it's often overlooked. I am gathering from the material I'm reading that the festival this weekend kind of seeks to correct that oversight. So tell us about the purpose of the San Isidro Festival. Well, I, I think, Mark, you know, you're absolutely right. I think that's, uh, that's something that we've forgotten about. But actually, the Fiesta San Isidro is really an old fiesta that was going back to the nine, eight, late 1800s, even longer. And it's primarily a saint associated with agricultural communities. So if you think of the mission system and what the Jesuits and the Franciscans were trying to achieve, it was a, basically a self-sustaining agricultural community. So San Isidro made a lot of sense. And during the period uh, after the uh, Chinese uh, came in to work at the railroad, um, they also were farming the Santa Cruz. And they were uh, big participators in the fiesta. So, you know, it, it was kind of cross-cultural in a sense. A newspaper article that I found in the Star from the late 18, I think it was from the 1880s, talked about how the Mexican farmers took San Isidro out on a sort of a beer, a statue of him, and they carried him through all the fields, and they blessed the fields and hoped for good rain. I mean, and this is the perfect time right before the, the rains would start. And they stopped at every house that had a farm attached to it. And so this would be all the way from Flowing Wells down to like 29th Street all along either side of the Santa Cruz River. And they'd stop at these uh, farmhouses and people would come out and they would give the people who were carrying the saint, who were mostly the Mexican farmers and the priest, a sip of Tiswino which is a corn beer that is made traditionally by Tarahumaras and Apaches, and it's alcohol, it's a drink. All of the Chinese farmers came out, and they were drinking Tizuino as well. And so what you see from this image of the news, in the newspaper is that you have this multicultural layered history that's very complex. You've got the native people, the uh, Spanish-Mexican people, the um, Chinese immigrants, and probably some Anglos were out there as well celebrating San Isidro. So it, it really, it's a festival that really celebrates Tucson's, not just the agriculture, but our integrated multicultural heritage. This event is free, so we're, you know, we're welcome all to come. I talked with Diana Hadley and Raul Ramirez of the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace, recorded in 2014. The second annual revival of the San Isidro Festival is Saturday, May 16th, from 9 to 11.30 a.m. at the southwest corner of Grande and Mission Lane. You can find more information at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find podcasts of the show on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.